of working on myself, experimenting with different time management and productivity systems, figuring out what works and discarding what doesn't, I've arrived at the six core skills one must cultivate to become what I call the super productive. In this episode, one by one, I'm going to explain what these skills are, why they're important, and how to actualize them in your life to achieve high levels of success in all areas. Skill number one, accept where you're at and then constantly improve yourself. From my observation, most of the people that I see in the world complain and make excuses for their current situation, but never really consciously accept where they're at first, so they never change. They're going through life at cause rather than at effect reactive to life. Once you've accepted the way things are and your current situation, you have the power to change. So you must first consciously accept where you are, look back at some of the decisions you've made in your life and how they've contributed to where you're at. Accept yourself. Don't be critical, just accept. Where you are is exactly where you're supposed to be. Now that you've accepted yourself, let's move into improving your current situation. First, get rid of the mindset that you're going to arrive somewhere, whether that be a particular relationship, job, or level of health. Don't aim to be perfect the first time either. It's about a long-term vision and making continual improvements. Realize that your life is a never-ending series of tweaking and optimizing, learning new things, putting them into practice, and constantly improving. You might think of this like the iterative process or development cycle programmers use when designing and coding computer software. First, they start out with a phase called pre-alpha, consisting of market research, data collection, early design, and engineering. The next phase is called alpha, where they develop the product just enough for an early round of testing. The third phase is called the beta phase, where the product is often released to a select group of people with the core functionality in place. Often you'll see Apple, for example, release a piece of software to developers to gather feedback and find any bugs. The final stage is where they release the product to the public. The whole cycle is an example of the continual improvement and fine tuning. Even after the product is released, Designers and developers always are making improvements and releasing updates and new versions of the software. So how do we do this? How do we continually improve ourselves? It's done through knowledge, through learning, and then taking action on what you're learning and actually applying it in the real world. This can be done through reading books, watching educational videos and audios online. That's how I personally learn a lot of what I know hiring coaches, attending seminars and retreats, and studying online learning courses. The learning and action taking is done through periods of immersion and active maintenance. Immersion being weeks, months, or even years where you're dedicating large chunks of time on developing in a particular area of life. Active maintenance 
meaning practicing what you've learned during your immersion cycle, never closed off to learning and adjusting, but your primary focus is on other areas. The idea is to go through cycles of immersion and active maintenance, constantly improving your level of health, wealth, relationships, and spirituality. So pick a particular area of life, block off undistracted time during the day, and go learn about it. We'll talk more about applying knowledge in later episodes. At this point, it's important that we take on the mindset that we must continually improve ourselves if we want to have a productive and fulfilling life. I read a quote recently by David Bailey, late famous English photographer. The best advice I ever got was that knowledge is power and to keep reading. A great exercise to help you identify some of the things you want to develop over the next months and years and paint a compelling vision of what your life could be like in the future if you take this mindset of continually learning and taking action is called my perfect day. So what you're going to do is in detail describe an average day, what it will look like five years from now. The idea is to write a compelling story of what a perfect day will look like in the next five years in the present tense, as if it's already happened. What time will you get up at? What will be the first thing you do in the morning? What will you eat for breakfast and lunch? What habits will you have in place in your life? What kind of exercise will you do? What will the relationships with your loved ones look like during your perfect day five years from now? What will your work consist of? Brent Smith of Brent Smith Lifestyle, a personal development coach, recommends you say your story to yourself multiple times a day, in the morning and perhaps when you're facing adversity during the day. This might be something you want to try. The second skill you're going to want to cultivate is mastering the ability to identify your highest priority tasks and focusing on making progress over time. Oftentimes in life, we don't make progress because we lack the ability to sort through tasks and select the critical few that will make a difference long term. We don't make progress in our life because A, we can't decipher the important from the unimportant and B, if we've managed to find something in our life that we'd like to accomplish, we lack the ability to delay gratification and focus on our goal day in and day out. You must understand the difference between the urgent and the important in life and be able to identify the few critical tasks in life that if accomplished, overall will have the biggest impact. One of the most important questions you can ever ask yourself is what from this point forward, if achieved, will have the biggest impact on my life physically, financially, relationally, and even on the spiritual level. We must learn to identify these high priority tasks in life and either ignore the others or create systems and outsource. I'll talk about an exercise to help you do this in just a second. But before I do, let's talk about what it means to focus because I think they're directly related. It's fine to be able to identify a goal, but if you can't get yourself to do what is necessary to accomplish it, it's meaningless. Any successful person that has achieved great success understand what it means and has mastered the ability to identify the biggest opportunity in their life and diligently make progress in that particular area over time. 
If you don't master focus and you let the environment and other forces dictate your life, you won't achieve the goals that you want to accomplish in your short time on this planet. You won't have the power and influence that you deserve. You will repel successful people instead of attracting them. Stress will come up for you in your life because you aren't achieving the success you know you're capable of. You won't have the financial success that you want. You won't be able to buy the things that you want to buy and take care of the people you love. Here's a quote by Tony Robbins. One reason so few of us achieve what we truly want is that we never direct our focus. We never concentrate our power. Most people dabble their way through life, never deciding to master anything in particular. Ultimately, if you don't focus all of your resources on mastering a single area, you won't have the impact on the world that you want to have. So now that we know why it's important to cultivate and master the ability to focus, let's talk a little bit about the theory. Let's start by breaking focus into two different components, inner focus and outer focus. Inner focus being able to control the effect our mind and emotions have on us. That pull to go check social media when we're reading a blog post. That urge to check our phone and email. When we've made the commitment to work on growing our business over the next three months and are pulled to start a new exercise regime, indecision, flip-flopping between goals, these are all just examples of lapses in focus. Outer focus, we might think of master over our external environment. Too often now, we just set up our work and home environment to perpetually interrupt us. We use the limited willpower we're given in a day to answer phone calls, text messages, and emails. We work in loud environments with an open door policy where people are able to distract and interrupt us whenever it's convenient for them. We trick ourselves into thinking we're good multitaskers and work on two or more things at once. Simply put, our lives today are ruled by distraction and interruption. The mindset shift that we must make in order to get some of our power back and take control over our mind and environment is to understand that the ability to focus is a muscle that must be developed over time. What does this look like? Here's a three-step plan to train your focus muscle. Step one, using a timekeeping device, work in undistracted blocks of time throughout the day. Place yourself in a quiet environment with a door that can be shut. Notify your loved ones that you're not to be interrupted if you have to. Step two, turn off all phones, email clients, and all other notifications. Limit these activities to a few time periods throughout the day and week. Step three, break up larger goals into smaller milestones. For bonus credit, use accountability and deadlines to accomplish each milestone. Now let's do a series of exercises and put together what we've learned into practice. The first part is an exercise called the 50 minute focus finder. I learned about this exercise from Dean Jackson, a business guru and co-host of a podcast called I Love Marketing. So for this part, the first thing you're going to do is set a timer for 50 minutes. 
hit start, and for 50 minutes, all you're going to do is write on a blank sheet of paper or new document if you're working on a computer, everything that is on your mind, regardless of the significance. At first, thoughts will flow, but then they will begin to stall, that's okay. Stay on task and complete the 50 minutes. You might discover interesting things that are on your mind that you weren't conscious of, say 30 to 45 minutes in. At this point, you should have a big list of things. In the second part of the exercise, you're going to go through each of the list and put a star beside everything that is in your control. Now, go through each of the starred ideas and prioritize each of them. Once you've done that, take the top 10 and write them on a blank sheet of paper or new document if you're using a computer. You now have a master list of the things that you're going to be working on in these undistracted blocks of time that we talked about. Over the next coming weeks and months, build up your focus muscle so that you can do four to six 60 minute chunks of time throughout the day with scheduled breaks in between. So in the coming days, block off time in 60 minute chunks to work on your highest priority activities. To recap, the ability to focus on specific tasks is the highest priority thing we can be doing. The ability to focus is learned and cultivated over time. Ultimately, you want to value the process and who you want to become above any form of instant gratification. Skill number three, choose your friends and family wisely. Immediately, the first thing I'm sure comes to your mind when you hear me say that is, well, you can't choose your family. And you're right, as a matter of fact, you can't choose your family. But what I'm going to suggest is that from this point forward, you absolutely do have a say in the matter. From the second after you hear this, you now have the power to choose. Because what is family anyway? Once you've matured into an adult, the line is blurred. There is no difference. Auntie, uncle, they're just words. They have the meanings you assign to them. You absolutely decide every moment of the day where and who you devote your time to. I believe the late Jim Rohn was the first to say, you're the average of the five people you spend the majority of your time with. How much money you make, the state of your physical health, the way you communicate and the dynamics you have with people. If I were to take an average of the five people closest to you in each of these areas, that's about where you'd be at. The best way to improve your life is to find people that have achieved what you'd want to achieve and then spend time around them. Figure out what their biggest problem or frustration is in life and how you can offer value to them. I'm going to play for you now a clip from an Owen Cook seminar. Owen does lots of work with men and how they interact with women and making them better men, really on all areas. Check it out. Here's the truth. I sound most like speakers who I watch a lot. I sound like my friends. I sound like the people who I watch. Basically, if you took the percentages that I was around them and you put it into a person, that's what we call Owen. The only difference is that I have a little bit of my own twist on it as well because I am exposed to a different environmental stimulus. If that's true, then who are you? You're a fucking sponge. You think you're this person, you think you're that person. You remember when I said earlier that like, I'm, uh, you know, I used to be a white knight? Why was I a white knight? Because I was influenced by white knight thinking. 
More what I'm even seeing is that now that I'm kind of moving up in the ranks of mental consciousness by being around that type of shit, when I'm around typical people, I feel disgusted. But it's not because I don't love them. I love people. It's because I feel where they're coming from and I'm very empathetic. I can feel how their mind is suppressed. And when I'm around them, it gets into me. Conversely, when I'm around people who I like hanging out with, what I feel is uplifted. I feel good, okay? So it actually moves up my mind. So what I realize over time, you have to be very controlling of what you choose to let into your headspace, okay? Massively controlling. You have to be aware of what's getting in. Don't let in shit that you have thought through and that you don't want to let in. Now, here's how that happens, and this is the next thing. The other way that I've started thinking about people is as a, as, as a miniature ecosystem. A human being is like a miniature ecosystem. So for example, let's say that you're addicted to carbohydrates that give you a lot of candida. You guys ever heard of candida? It's like, is it like some kind of yeast thing? I'm not totally clear on this. Any health nuts in here? Okay, it's some kind of yeast thing or something like that, right? But the basic gist of it is that you have like this fucking yeast in your body that craves you to eat carbs that fuel it. You're part you, you're part yeast. And so you crave it. People who crave alcohol, they can't be without the alcohol. If you think about it, they are alcohol by a weird way of looking at it. They have become alcohol. See, what's funny about other people's bullshit is you can just cut them out. Your own bullshit is the hardest one because you can't cut that out. So now you got your own bullshit going. And I find when I'm having bullshit thoughts, I'm just like, nope. Like, it's not even hard anymore. I'm just like, this is stupid. No. It's just not getting let in. The iron gate is shut. I think I also became like this because I looked at the people I admire the most, and they're like that. The people who I see crushing it have very strong personal boundaries, and they have very strong personal ecosystems. So what you have to do to do what I'm talking about here, is you have to choose your influences very carefully and choose what am I putting into myself very carefully. Then what you have to do is you have to have a very strong personal boundary of anything that's not moving you in that direction. But to do this, I think, to make it practical and to pull it off, you have to have a reason why you're doing it. There has to be something that motivates you to do that. If it's not motivating you to do that, you're not gonna have the strength to have those personal boundaries. Don't try to create personal boundaries by sheer willpower. It doesn't work. I've tried. What you have to do is create a bigger purpose, a bigger motivation or goal that's compelling enough to you that the personal boundaries naturally come up. That's my experience, but maybe everybody has a different experience. But that's definitely my experience. My personal boundary, I, I struggled for years with personal boundaries. I, you know, I'm like, oh, just use your willpower, man. Resist making the mistake. Resist having the dumb thoughts and indulging in them. But it was always an uphill battle. When, I, when my sense of purpose became stronger, all of a sudden it's just like riding a bike downhill without even pedaling. It's like the easy, it's just so easy to say no. I call that like the power of no. Hey man, wanna get, wanna get drunk with me? No. <laughs> hey, man, just let loose a bit. Eat this bullshit food. No. I'll take the millions of dollars in changing the world and having sex 100 hot women and traveling. Enjoy your pizza. Now, let's talk about how we actually do that. 
What if your friends and family aren't the type of people you want to become? What do you do then? You have two options. Number one, cut them off. Stéphane Molyneux, a Canadian philosopher, really brilliant guy, has a popular podcast on iTunes called Free Domain Radio. Really smart guy, coined this term defooing. Defooing, the way I understand it, is basically dissociating yourself from people who are doing you harm, emotionally, mentally, physically, etc., and whom you don't have positive, healthy relationships with. So the first option you have is to defoo friends and family that fall into this category. And typically, this isn't a formal process that has to happen, although sometimes it is. Just simply distance yourself and stop returning their calls. They'll get the picture. This may sound harsh, but remember, you've determined they aren't good for you. The second option is something I learned from Eben Pagan, and he talks about getting them at their best. What does this mean? Find out some activity or place where this particular person or group is optimistic and a pleasure to be around and spend time with them then. Now, it's important that you understand that I'm not saying that you go through life being overcritical of new or existing friends or family or treating relationships like a chess game where somebody is only in your life for a specific purpose. It is, however, that you always come from the mindset that you never accept second-class behavior from anybody. Most importantly, this goes for the way you talk to yourself too, but I'm focusing on accepting it from other people now. This also pertains to the intimate relationships in your life, but that isn't the topic here. Skill number four, master physical, emotional, and logical recovery. Simply put, if you don't have physical energy and a clear mind, you won't have the impact on the world that you want to have. Physically, if you're tired and getting sick all the time, you won't have the physical energy and vitality to be productive and get things done. You won't be operating at your best. Creativity, for example, you have to have energy to problem solve and be creative. We've all heard of the concept flow. Mihai Csikszentmihalyi first wrote about this in his famous book called Flow. Flow is that state where time seems to stand still and you are focused on the task at hand. You can't enter flow if you're exhausted. So it's critical that we understand recovery from a physical point of view. If you let your emotions build up inside of you and don't express them in a healthy way, stress will come up, making it impossible to be productive long term. Like physical energy, if you don't give your mind a chance to rest and recover logically, it will be impossible to enter flow. You won't be able to concentrate because your mind will be occupied by all the trials and tribulations of life. It's actually quite counterintuitive to think by recovering physically, emotionally, and logically, you will actually be more productive when it comes time to do work. Another thing I've learned from my mentor, Eben Pagan, is that during the day, you're either doing one of two things, producing or recovering. Producing, being engaged in an activity to produce a tangible result, and recovering, meaning recharging your energy. Now, like most things in life, 
producing activities and recovering activities are on a scale. So there are certain activities that are more producing when compared to others and more recovering physically, emotionally, and logical activities that recharge you more. Now, like most things in life, producing activities and recovering activities are on a scale. So there are certain activities that are more productive when compared to others and more recovering physically, emotionally, and logical activities that recharge you more. What you want to do is to determine the activities that are most productive to be engaged in. And we already talked about that. And then determine what activities allow your body, mind, and heart to recover the most. For example, a lot of people I see watch a lot of television during the day. That's fine if that's a recovering activity for you. But what I would ask is, where does this fall on your scale? In the long term, would it be more recovering physically, emotionally, and logically to watch an hour of television or get a massage? Go for a walk outside, laugh with friends, for example. It's okay to mix up different recovering activities on the scale, but my advice to you would be to incorporate as many high recharging activities as you can. Here's a list of some of my favorites. Physically, sleeping eight hours in a pitch black silent room, getting regular massages, chiropractic adjustments and acupuncture, taking baths and dry and wet saunas for emotional recovery, watching a funny movie, watching a sad movie that makes me cry, music, counseling and other forms of therapy, and for logical recovery, float tanks. This is something I was introduced to by UFC commentator Joe Rogan. Look them up. Baths and saunas also have the dual benefit of recharging the mind. Meditation. Doing mundane tasks in silence. In order to live a productive life and contribute your gift to the world, you must master the art of recovery. Skill number five. Proactively build positive habits by setting up conditions in your life. Aristotle said it best, we are what we repeatedly do. Your life is defined by your habits, whether they're formed consciously or unconsciously. Most people in life go through the world unconsciously trapped in mental, emotional, and physical routines or habits that were developed in childhood, most likely, in a dreamlike state. The alternative is to zoom out and get perspective on your life and ask yourself, what specifically, if done on a regular basis, would bring me closer to my goals and purposes? Again, Eben Pagan first introduced me to the idea of proactively building habits and setting up conditions in life. What's the best way to form a habit? It's by stacking the deck in your favor, setting up conditions so that what you want to happen happens automatically. Conditions are things outside of yourself that don't require willpower. Most people rely on willpower to build habits. They use up all their willpower through the day, therefore never build proactive habits. I'd like to outline one option for setting up conditions in your life to make what you want to happen, happen automatically, without direct willpower. It's a model I developed called the Tower of Momentum. There's basically five steps that build on each other. Step one is getting a clear understanding of what you want to achieve, why you want to achieve it, 
And lastly, what you're willing to give up. Ask yourself these three questions. One, what do you want to achieve? Two, why do you want to achieve it? Three, what are you willing to give up to achieve it? Step number two, determine your ideal outcome. Take what you want to achieve and make it as measurable, tangible, and specific as possible. Take I want to lose body fat to I want to lose 10 pounds of body fat, for example. Step number three, set a deadline. Anywhere between 30 and 90 days works for me. There's lots of really great habit apps out there. I used an app called Lyft before that was good. You can download it at lyft.do. Step four, get some accountability. The idea with accountability is to determine some kind of punishment for not completing the task to keep you on track. You could report it to a friend regularly whether you did the task or not, or use a simple service like Stick, S-T-I-C-K-K.com or DeclareTask.com. Stick allows you to set different stakes and Declare Task will send you text messages to help keep you accountable. For a more detailed outline of the Tower of Momentum, I wrote an article on Manish Sethi's blog called How to Set and Accomplish Any Goal, or a link to the article is listed on my website, organizedandproductive.com. In terms of what habits to start with, I recommend starting with a couple of cornerstone habits like sleep and water. These cornerstone habits are those key habits that when formed really have a domino effect and make forming other ones easier. So some other great habits are things like meditation, writing, flossing your teeth, stretching, exercise, taking supplements, calling friends and family, long dinners with friends and family, and gratitude. Two really good times during the day I found to do habits is either first thing in the morning or before you go to bed. Over time, you can stack your habits on top of each other and build a great morning and nighttime routine that you do every day. Now for the last skill, skill number six, one word, plan. Whether it be planning your day, week, or trip, a plan allows you to be efficient and maximize your waking hours. A plan removes the friction, stress, and also serves as accountability, reminding you what's important. We've all had that horrible regret at the end of the day after not accomplishing anything we wanted to. If you don't plan beforehand and let the agendas of other people or quote how you feel to dictate your day and life. Simply put, you won't accomplish the things you want to accomplish. Not only will your nights be filled with regret, but your life will be one big story of regret. So it's critical that we understand what it means to plan effectively and master the skill. Let's look at planning in terms of three different time frames: the short term, the medium term, and the long term. Short term being one day, the medium term being 90 days, and the long term being one year. Any longer than that, and I personally find it hard to conceptually wrap my mind around that long in the future. But that's not to say that there isn't value in having three and five year long goals. I want to emphasize that whether it be short, 
medium, or long term, obviously it's important to be flexible and realize that things come up in life and make changing your plans the right thing to do. I like to plan my year in 90-day increments with specific time set aside during the week to edit the plan and lay out the week and make any adjustments where needed. It's not about perfection when following a plan. Aim for about 80% and don't mentally beat yourself up if there's something that comes up that forces you to change your plans. A lot of times when I talk about this to people, they'll say things like, geez, don't you feel really restricted in having set plans like that? I could never stick to something like that or I like to go with the flow. In reality, it's actually very freeing and that's what a lot of people don't understand. It also allows you to focus on one thing at a time, whether that be producing or proactively recovering and then letting go. All that worry about what to do next or what you haven't accomplished is gone. That's what creates that feeling of lost that oftentimes we experience in life. I think you'll find it very internally rewarding and fulfilling to be extremely productive. You'll also learn that it builds on itself and you find more and more ways to make yourself more productive and efficient. So there you have it, the six skills you must cultivate to join this small group of people on this planet I call the super productive. To recap, number one is to first accept where you're at and then constantly improve yourself. Number two, master the ability to identify your highest priority tasks and focus on making progress over time. Number three, is to choose your friends and family wisely. Number four, master physical, emotional, and logical recovery. Number five, proactively build positive habits by setting up conditions in your life. And number six, plan. I hope you find this helpful and I'll talk to you soon. Bye for now.